The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word then to Exodus 18. Exodus is there in your Old Testament. It's the second book uh, in the Bible. If you're unfamiliar with uh, the scriptures, just go to the very beginning. You'll find a book called Genesis, and then Exodus is uh, the second book there. And you'll find those big numbers uh, that will lead you to chapter 18. But that's uh, where we'll be. And we've been working our way chapter by chapter through Exodus this summer. Um, And if you didn't know, this morning is actually our last message in this series, God of glory. Next week, you'll have a a special message from Colossians 3, and then the week after that is our three-year anniversary on October 4th. Isn't that crazy, church? Like, I know, that is reason to celebrate, isn't it? Like, God has been so good to us as a young church as we launched there October 1st, 2017, and how He has preserved us and been faithful to His promise uh, to let us make it three years. Amen? Amen. So we'll see what the next three years uh, hold for us. And even as we think of three years, it's good for us to be reflective, isn't it? It's good for us to think back, to remember. If we've seen, especially in, uh, in recent chapters in Exodus, it's good for us to remember uh, what God has done. And it's, and it's dangerous to forget the work of God, isn't it? It's dangerous for us to forget the words of God and the perfection of God, but it is good for us to remember. And so as you think back on the story of Exodus thus far, you know, whether you've been here every Sunday and heard every message or you've only been with us for a few Sundays, or even if you're here with us this morning and a guest, whether in person or joining us online, maybe you just even know a little bit about the Exodus and the Red Sea and how Israel were enslaved by the Egyptians. But as you think back on Exodus, what lessons stand out? Has there been a a truth, a message, a a point, a verse, or a passage that has been timely and impactful for you this summer. Pray that it has, and I pray that you would uh, share and uh, whatever comes to mind with somebody, maybe your spouse or your kids this week, or uh, people in your small group, or share it with all of them, because it is good for us to be reflective. But uh, all that to say is we still have one more uh, passage. We have one more chapter for us this morning uh, that is going to cover this first section of the Israelites' deliverance from their oppression. Now, Exodus, just so you know, uh, all 40 chapters, the entire book here breaks into two neat sections. Chapters 1 through 18 really tell the story of their deliverance. And then in chapter 19 through the end to chapter 40 tells the story of how the Israelites were to worship, walk, and work in the presence of God while they were encamped there at uh, Mount Sinai. And this, uh, this newly formed nation of recently liberated people. Now, God was beginning to form their culture. He was beginning to establish this group of people as a distinct nation who followed him and followed and obeyed his statutes. He was establishing a culture that they had formed as they came out of enslavement in Egypt and now were moving to the promised land. And God was, uh, he was changing the way that they think. Patterns in which they live. You hear this word, culture, all the time. I use it, and I think it bears a little bit of definition, but culture is just simply a group of people with accepted customs and accepted convictions. 
It's a group of people with established leadership and established laws and even simple things like an established language. And culture exists on a, on a huge level. There's a global culture. There's a national culture. We Texans have a, have a culture, don't we? But then in every corner of Texas, there's, a, there, there's its own culture, isn't there? And here in New Braunfels, we have a, a, our own culture and German and Hispanic history. And even within our church now, we have a culture. And every small group has its own distinct culture, things that unite us and bring us together, but embody the personalities and interests of the people. And so since the Red Sea rescue... Uh, just a few chapters ago in Exodus, God has been establishing the norms for this new culture, this new nation. They were to be a people who worshiped the Lord only, weren't they? They were to put behind them all other religions, all other gods, all other leaders, and they were to worship the Lord only, uh, uh, who they relied upon for their provision for every need and their protection from every enemy. They were to put off grumbling, right? We saw that, right? Everyone just kind of shake your head, right? Give an amen to that because we've seen that and all been convicted in recent weeks by that. Grumbling and complaining and quarreling is indicative of a, of a, of a secular culture, a culture not defined by, uh, by their deliverance from the Lord. And we are to be defined by our rejoicing, by our worship, amen? This is what sets us apart uh, from the nations. They were to put those things off. And these weren't merely just norms for ancient Israel, for this newly formed nation, but the principles and the practices that we've seen every week are, are really for the people of God in every era. As, we have, as we've dug down in the story to what God was revealing and what he was teaching to them, these principles and these practices were for even Christ followers, for us in the church today. And so as we get to Exodus 18 now, we have really two more principles that uh, God is establishing amongst this newly formed nation, this newly formed culture. And he's using Moses' father-in-law of all people to help teach these lessons to this nation, his father-in-law named Jethro. See, if you're taking notes, here's the kind of the big thing. A vibrant, healthy culture does two things. A vibrant, healthy culture does here first. It celebrates with family the work of God. If you're taking notes, here's, uh, here's our first point. A vibrant, healthy culture celebrates with family the work of God. And so I, I've said a lot of things, but we want the word of God to speak, don't we? Amen, we do. So join me in, in uh, Exodus 18. I want to read the first 12 verses for us. They say this. Look there in your Bibles and follow along. It says this, Jethro the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Joseph, or Moses, rather, went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. 
And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Somebody give an amen to that. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, this is God's word for God's people. Isn't this a great uh, little portion of Scripture? It's like we're finally back to some, to some cheerful things. Amen? In the last few chapters, I've been grumbling and complaining. And we've seen a mirror from the Scriptures. And it's now we are on to the celebration. But here introduced at the beginning of the chapter is this guy Jethro, and who we're told over and over is Moses, what? His father-in-law. It's his, it's his father-in-law. And we were first introduced him way back in chapter 2, remember? As Moses fled from Egypt because he had murdered the Egyptian uh, 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 person that was attacking the Israelites there. And so he flees into the wilderness and he's at this well uh, and these women come up and he helps them out and then they take him home and they're introduced. They were the sons, or they were the daughters, rather, of this priest, and his name was Ruel there, but Jethro also, and so Moses lives with him uh, for that period of time, and in chapter 4, then, uh, they depart as uh, Moses has now been commissioned to go back to Egypt and set the people free. We're told that Jethro here, just in the first verse, is the priest of Midian, Midian, remember, is, is a, a, another distant relative of the Israelites. Midian being a son of Abraham. Abraham married Sarah and had Isaac, but then after Sarah died, Abraham, back in chapter 25 of Genesis, he marries this woman Keturah and has several sons, and Midian is one of them. They weren't followers of Yahweh. They weren't uh, followers of the Lord. They likely were a polytheistic religion, had many gods. And this guy Jethro, the father-in-law, is a priest of them, whatever that meant. But as he comes, he is blessing Moses. He is, uh, he is doing a good work. And there's a contrast here because where did we leave off last week? If you remember at the end of Exodus 17. Another distant relative, the Amalekites, do they come with a blessing to the Israelites? No, they come and attack them. And if we remember the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis 12, those that curse the people of God will be themselves cursed. Or we could say those who attack God's people will themselves be attacked. But those who come with peace and a blessing will indeed be a blessing. And so right here, even though they're separate chapters, there's a contrast showing what happens to the people that, uh, that both attack or uh, accept God's people. And so they come, and this news of what God had done had spread to Midian like it had spread to all the nations. So we've seen chapters like the work of God, the miracles, the judgments that God unleashed on the Egyptians for their oppression of the Israelites had made its way to the nations, to where many stood in fear. The Amalekites thought they could defeat him, but now the word had spread to Midian. And so he comes to meet Moses at Sinai, or the mountain of God, and he reunites the family. 
Don't you just love this here? So, as uh, Moses, can you picture the reunion after a time of uh, a, a period of time that we don't actually know? He's now reunited with his wife and kids. Anybody ever gone on a long business trip? Anybody been deployed and away from your family? And, and, and you remember the reunion as families coming back together? You can picture it similar to this. We don't know. Sometime after chapter 4 there, Moses, likely to protect his wife and kids, sends them back to live with his in-laws. And now after they've been delivered, they've made their way to the mountain. They come back together and we're introduced to the sons. And the second son, actually, we get his name as well, Eliezer. And we're given the significance of their names. You've probably caught on in your Old Testament reading that names were, give, were given weight and meaning. Well, things that God had done in their life. Names weren't just chosen, at least uh, the ones that are recorded here, because they sounded cute or they were popular in the day. They were given weight and meaning. And so you can imagine here the affection not only between them, but also the father-in-law. And we don't have to imagine because we're, we're even told here in verse 7 that Moses goes out and he bows before him in honor. And they embrace and hug and kiss to show this affection. And they ask about this welfare, literally the, their shalom, their state of being. Are they at peace with one another? And Moses then, even though... Jethro had heard all of it. He begins to recount all of it. Can you imagine as they sit around there and he begins to tell all the stories? You've heard this through the news, but let me tell you, uh, as Moses would recount all the things that had happened uh, for them. And, and, and you can imagine here as Moses being the writer of the book of Exodus, that as he even began to tell, tell his father-in-law these stories, it probably became what we even have written here in chapters like 5 through 17. As he is recounting, what does it say? All that God has done, all the hardship. Did you see that in verse 8? He's not leaving out the, the, the difficult details of all the hardship, but then all that God had done for them. Not what Moses did. No, we're not given any indication that he was boasting, oh yeah, and when I raised the staff, they... No, it's all how God had delivered them and what he had done. And when hearing this, what does Jethro do, church? What does he do in verse 9? He rejoices. And then in verses 10 through 12, we're given this picture. He blesses the Lord. He worships God, offering a sacrifice, giving him the praise due exclusively to God. When he hears that, we're given the indication here, as Jethro hears the work of God, to use our uh, nomenclature, to use our language of the day, we would say, Jethro likely here gets saved. He turns to the, the Lord, and as he, as he blesses the Lord, he rejects all other religions. I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, and he then offers this worship, this sacrifice, offering to God burnt offerings and sacrifices, and then they all sit down. The elders of Israel, the spiritual leaders, welcome him in, and they eat bread. They share together uh, as a covenant family over this meal. It sounds kind of like a potluck after a baptism, right? As we hear a testimony, as we hear of God's work, and, and the people celebrate, and they rejoice, and, and they make this commitment, this offering to the Lord, they go public with their faith, and then afterwards we all eat and, and worship and celebrate uh, what God is doing. But see, this culture here, what's happening, this new nation is forming, led by God, following after His Word, and a culture is being created now. And you may have heard this. This isn't unique to me, but uh, I don't actually know the source of it. But you may have heard this about culture. And it's this, if you're taking notes. It's that culture is created by what we celebrate and what we tolerate. 
Culture is created by what we celebrate and what we tolerate. As this new nation is forming, they would be, uh, they would be uh, defined by the work of God and celebrating the work of God. But this extends into our home too, doesn't it? Even in our home, the things that we celebrate begin to define the, the culture of our home. As we parent our kids, if we celebrate obedience and respect and, and uh, cheerful obedience and, and getting along, and as we celebrate uh, selfless acts, and as we celebrate uh, joy, and as we celebrate the work of God, these things begin to define the, the nature of our home. They begin to create a godly uh, home life. But if we tolerate sinful actions, if we tolerate amongst our kids disobedience and disrespect and quarreling and anger and uh, demanding of our own way, what kind of culture does that create in our home? Not a great one, that's for sure. A godly one, likely, but a miserable one, probably more so. But a culture is created by what we celebrate and what we tolerate. And this is so true in the church as well. As we here in the church, as we celebrate the work of God with joyful worship, singing to God about God, celebrating and looking to what God is doing in our life, and then this begins to form our discipleship culture, how we pour into one another, how we then evangelize and how we witness to one another. All of these things, what we celebrate is a part of both our discipleship and our evangelism, to the point where even bystanders worship, not just those who experience it. That Jethro, hearing the stories of what God has done, is now coming to the Lord. And as Moses shares just the, the work of God, they hear it, and he begins to believe it. And we too, church, as we talk about baptisms, as we talk about the testimonies of God at work in our own life, as we're sharing it uh, what, uh, in our small group, then other Christians are being encouraged and built up. No matter what they're going through, maybe they're in a dry season, and as they see God at work in you, they are built up. But as unbelievers hear it as well, then they too can't deny what is happening, and they begin to see that this is real. This is something that I have to reckon with. This isn't just some idol, some lifeless uh, being out here, but this is actual and true as they begin to see the difference in your life. Now, many of us in here have family members that are far from the Lord, aren't we? Don't we? We have those that we've been praying for for a long time. Those that uh, knew us even before we were following the Lord, before we were uh, Christ followers. And they can be the hardest ones to, to share the gospel with, can't they? Because they knew who we once were. But let me just encourage you, church, that as you begin to talk about what God is doing now, share them, show, show it, uh, how it's worth it. How it's, how it's changing you. Tell of the strife, tell of the hardship, but then of what God has done and let them see the difference. And you may see a Jethro-like thing happen in your own family. So we're to celebrate with our kids, we're to celebrate with our siblings and our parents, but we celebrate with family and even the church family, the work of God. And so this may be, you may be asking the question, maybe it's been unclear, maybe there's been some confusion. What is the work of God? We talk about that a lot around here, don't we? Say, this is the Lord's doing. God is at work. This is a place that God is at work. And so what does that even mean? Have any ideas? Are we like looking for him to like send lightning bolts and storms? And what does it mean that God is active? Well, it is pretty simple in terms. You actually walked right by it when you came in the doors here. That black sign, that banner there, anyone know what it says? This is the work of God, that we would see the lost saved, 
The saved matured and the mature multiplied all to the glory of God. This is God's work among us. This is what he's doing on the earth. As, he see, as God, he takes those who are dead in their sin and makes them alive in Christ. As God gives us a heart of flesh where we once had a heart of stone, this is God's doing. And he's doing it among us. He may be even doing it today as you are hearing these things about the Lord for the very first time. This is God's work in you, leading you to repentance, to put your sin behind you and to begin following Christ, trusting in his work on the cross for your hope of eternal life. This is God's work, seeing the lost saved, but it doesn't stop there. It's not as though God is just here to get us all saved and then to kick back, but his work is to then mature us. And this is really the work that is happening all throughout our life as he is helping to put to death those sins that just are stubborn in our life. As he is maturing us, as we are then not only putting to death uh, these sinful patterns and and things in our life, but he is is, uh, making us alive in him and giving us new desires, new priorities. As we are growing in him and maturing in, in our understanding of who God is, what his word says to us. As we are growing in our affection for the Lord and growing in our daily application and obedience to him. This is the work of God through His Spirit, through the community of believers around us and the word that He has given us all to His glory as He is maturing us and then multiplying us. So we're not just growing as a simple branch in our own self, but we are to be multiplied. We are to be pouring into the next generation. We're to be pouring into the people around us. We are to be taking on more responsibility, growing up in our faith. And God is doing this. It is his work ultimately making disciples. This is what he's doing on the earth, and he invites us into it. Isn't that amazing, church? Isn't that amazing as he would bring us into it? And because this is his work, this is what we celebrate. This is what makes the church highlight reels, so to speak. With the NFL starting, there's now highlight reels coming all over the place. But, uh, but the, what makes the church highlight reels, the heavenly highlight reels, is the work of God through Jesus Christ in our life. And we participate in that work. We participate in that mission by giving him, by using our time, talent, and our treasure for his glory and this gets, our, this, is, this gets our biggest celebration, our loudest cheers, our, our deepest joy, our most enthusiastic energy, way more than we would ever celebrate a Green Bay touchdown. But you know what the beauty of it is? Even as we celebrate these things, is as we recognize who God is and who we are, we, we celebrate because we realize that, and, and we recognize, like, I, I can't believe that he would even let us be a part of it. We're we're like so unqualified for the team, and yet God would use us to be a part of it. We celebrate it. And here's the thing, church. Healthy, vibrant, growing churches get this. They get it, and they celebrate this. We we celebrate the work of God uh, with one another, and, and that celebration is really just reflexive. It's just what pours out of us because everyone is aware of it, and everybody's eager to share it. We see God at work, and this is what we love the most. And so we, we can't help but just give a praise to the Lord when we hear stories of the lost being saved. As we see one another taking steps of maturity, steps of obedience. As we see about people taking steps of faith and being multiplied out of, of taking steps out of their comfort zone. And we celebrate and applaud the work of God that would move us in that way. And here's the thing, our church, even though we're a young church of three years old, we've seen this uh, over and over again, and we have much to celebrate, don't we? 
We, we, we're about to celebrate three years of God's faithfulness to us, and we could tell story after story after story. And those of you who are just joining us, those of you who are just part of this story, I can only uh, commend you to listen to these things and then be a part of it and watch God at work in your life. We're a church that celebrates, and we want to invite others into the celebration. And so I just challenge you, who can you invite to come to the three-year celebration in a couple weeks? Men, who can you invite to come to man camp in a few weeks? Who needs to be among the people of God, watching the work of God happen among us? See, healthy, vibrant, growing churches celebrate with family the work of God. We celebrate with one another. But here's the second thing where the rest of the chapter goes. A vibrant, healthy culture does a second thing, and it mobilizes the faithful in work for God. A healthy, vibrant church mobilizes the faithful in the work of God. And so now that Jethro is in the family here, he has some advice for his son-in-law. And I want us to read about it now. Let's pick it up in verse 13 and read to the end of the chapter. It says this, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people." Men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the peoples as chief of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace." So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is God's word for God's people. This is a great ending here, isn't it? And there's, a, there's a really a contrast that stands out in our two sections in this chapter, uh, in chapter 18. There's the good of verse 9 that God did. Did you see that? He, says, he tells all the good that God did versus the not good in verse 17 that Moses was doing. See, there's very deliberate here. And Moses, as the writer, is pointing out his own uh, misdeeds here. See, God alone can manage all the details of the, wor- of the world, but Moses cannot, and neither can we. Try as we might though, right? Try as we might to juggle all the things in our life. We try to do it alone. And God is showing us here that no, he alone can do all of this, but it is not good for man to try to do it all themselves. And Moses here, we've gotten the picture. He's a pretty high capacity person, isn't he? 
He can bear a lot of responsibility. He, he has some courage that is unique. He is, he's got some giftedness that uh, maybe sets him apart as a leader. But it is not good for a man from sunup to sundown to be lined up with people in cases where he is neglecting everything else. You see this is the scene here. He's sitting alone uh, among the people. And really from the time the sun comes up to the time the sun comes down, people are lined up seeking his counsel. It says that he is sitting there to judge. But don't, don't read that or don't mistake that in your mind for like our court system. Like Moses was there with a black gown and white uh, a wig and you know, there's lawyers and gavels and, uh, and, and juries and all that stuff. That's not you know, the, the scene here. They're coming to him and they're seeking his counsel to weigh in on all kinds of matters, particularly the things of God and the, to settle disputes as we read about. It's a scene very similar to like coming to the elders to help you make a decision as you're seeking direction about something in your life. And you can imagine with the two to three million people, how many disputes and how many people needed this godly wisdom. But could one man do it alone? Absolutely not. It wasn't good for him nor for the people. He would fatigue. He would burn out. He would wear out trying to do it on his own. And it wasn't good for the people as they could not get these decisions and they could not get the advice and counsel they needed in a timely manner. This was not good for him. So or rather Jethro advises that Moses mobilize the faithful to do the work of God. To organize them then into these multiple tiers for the organization of the people, 10, 50, 100, and thousands. What does it say in verse 24? Moses, he, uh, just because his father-in-law is giving him the advice, he says, yeah, I don't want to listen to you. No, he listens. He, he listens and he follows it. He wasn't too prideful. He knew he had other responsibilities. He knew this was the best way to lead this group of people. And Jethro's advice is not only for Moses, but it's sage counsel for us today too, isn't it? For every era of God's people. See, progress gets bottlenecked when everything has to go through one person, doesn't it? Progress gets bottlenecked here, but yeah, this, is a, this, this is a principle here as this nation is forming. But as you fast forward to the book of Acts, these same principles and practices are at play there as the church is being formed. See, the, the, the church, this new culture here, as it is, as it is progressing, and the Jesus, he is now left and, and ascended into heaven, and he has commissioned his disciples to, uh, to, bear, or to uh, birth the church here as the Holy Spirit comes, and they begin preaching the word of God, and thousands are getting saved. This is great, isn't it? It's great as the church is growing rapidly, but now all of a sudden with all these people coming, now they have needs that need to be cared for problems that are happening, disputes that need to be uh, taken care of and, and discerned uh, between. And so you get to the uh, book of Acts in chapter 6, and now you have this whole segment of their society that is hungry, these widows that need to be cared for, and the, the, the apostles, or those original disciples, are like, we, can't, we, we, we can't take care of all these needs. And so they go and they commission these men to take care of these needs so that way they could devote themselves to prayer, the ministry of the word, and the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. They couldn't do it all, and so they, uh, they mobilized this group of people in this newly formed culture. As churches are then being formed in location, as the gospel is spreading, God has organized it that a plurality of elders would lead, who would serve by leading in the four Ds, a group of men set apart for their godly characteristics, the way that they lead, who would be entrusted with the doctrine of the church, the discipleship of the church, the discipline of the church, and the direction of the church. 
They would be the men who would lead that, this plurality of elders and those deacons who would serve alongside them, caring for the physical needs of the church. They were mobilized uh, them. And this has been happening at redemption, hasn't it? God has added elder to our midst, and as we are uh, constantly assessing and training new elders, and as deacons will come here shortly uh, after that, as, as elders are raised up, and under these offices here, we have small group leaders who are shepherding and leading and teaching uh, smaller groups of people and, and small group apprentices who are being raised up, excuse me, to, to come alongside and to take more responsibility and of the physical ministries of our church. We have those ministry team leaders and team leads under them who are given responsibility to take care of the things like usher and finance and facilities and redemption kids and redemption students and all the physical ministries here. But God has designed this mobilization of the faithful in the work for God, hasn't he? This is a principle here, and it is a principle for us. And our passage now gives us a biblical framework for how to do this. Did you catch that there? Did you catch it in verse 21 as, he, as, as Jethro lays out really for all time here this, this framework for how to mobilize the faithful for the work? And it begins by evaluating character and capability. The question remains then, well, who do we look for? A healthy, vibrant, growing church, what type of people should be given responsibility Healthy, vibrant people, right? Who are we looking for? We're looking for able men. Did you see that in verse 21? Look for these men. Not just anyone. It's not like, okay, do you have a pulse? You have, you have time? Okay, well, no, that's, we're looking for those that are competent with the scriptures. Those that have the time availability to, to, to meet the, the responsibilities that are being asked of them. And so we're to look for these people that are able, that are competent, but not just that, but people who fear God. Really, another term for are you a Christian? Are you following Christ? Or Christ has the priority in your life and how you make decisions. It's not what do I want or what does my wife want, but what does God want for us? We fear God. And, these, and what characterizes somebody who fears God is that they're teachable, that they're holy and humble, that they are pure in action and poor in spirit. Or people that the Spirit's fruit are evident, that they have a new heart in their life, and their mind, their thinking, their, the words that they say demonstrate that they uh, do indeed fear God, and we're evaluating this character. What does it say next? That they're trustworthy. You see that here? Men who are trustworthy, those who are reliable, those who are accountable, those who keep their commitments to all things, no matter if it's a small responsibility or a large responsibility. What did we define as those who are trustworthy, and then hate bribes, meaning that the person is full of integrity, somebody that is, is honest in all their dealings, whether it's in private or out in public, who are in it for the Lord and for others and not uh, seeking the position for selfish gain, for promotion, for the business contacts that they will uh, get it. They're not self-promoting, but they are a person who is trustworthy, who hate bribes. The president at Moody, when I was there, Dr. Easley used to tell us this all the time. He would, he would tell us students, he'd be, say, be the type of person that others can trust with their wallet and their wife. That just stuck with me. Over, but he, be the type of man that uh, others can trust with their wallet and their wife. You're full of integrity, full of, of, of faith. No questions. You're blameless and above reproach. 
And we're evaluating this character. This is, these are things that are characteristic of the faithful. And after you've evaluated them, then what do they need? They need the equipping. They need to be organized. They need specific responsibility of what they're to do. The small matters. Here are the people that you're entrusted with. And here's what's not your responsibility. Those great matters of when to take it up the uh, chain and, and, and take it to the next level or when to pass the baton forward. See, as a mobilizing, as an equipping church, we want to constantly be handing the baton forward of passing it on to others. How can I bring other people into this? And healthy, vibrant, growing churches know how to mobilize and equip and organize so that we endure for the long haul. See, that's what he's saying. He's saying, you can't do this. You can't keep this up for very long. These long days, Moses, you will burn yourself out. But if you do this, he says, God will direct you. If you do this, you will be able to endure, and it will be easier for you. But I don't, and I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of something that outlasts me. Aren't you? And I want to be a part of something that isn't just a, a here today and gone tomorrow. I want to be a part of something that is healthy and growing and vibrant, a strong oak that lasts through storms, strong oak that is, that, whose roots are deep in the things of the Lord. I want to be a part of a place that, is, that endures for the long haul, however long God would see it, that it would be a place of peace. You see this here, then they will go to their place in peace, a place where unity prevails because the gospel prevails, where division is behind us because we are not dividing over the things that don't matter. And if redemption is to continue to be a healthy, vibrant church, if we are to continue to be a church who's about the God of glory, then we must be committed to mobilizing the faithful in the work of God at every level. From our homes to the gathering, the corporate gathering here, in every ministry team, in every small group here, so that every person at redemption is vital to the work of ministry. Every person here, there is a place for you, a place where you can be fed and a place where you can serve. And so what is our work for Christ? We've talked about what is the work of God? What is our work for him then? Well, it's the mission. It's the great commission, isn't it? It's, it's us uh, participating in Matthew 18 of, of making disciples of all nations, of intentionally investing in others for their spiritual good. And it's what we do here in the church, right? This is how we love one another. Why do we have greeters? So that way we can welcome others in. We welcome people in in the same way that Christ welcomes us to God. Grace in which we stand. Why do we have redemption kids? So we can make disciples of our kids. There's a battle out there for, for the next generation. There are so many distractions trying to steal uh, the, the seed from the, from the soil of our kids' hearts. And so we, we invest in things like redemption kids and redemption students so that the gospel will continue to be uh, to proclaimed among them and will fall on the good soil, raising up the next generation, mobilizing them to take the gospel to the next generation, to the next nation. We must be a part of this, shouldn't we, church? See, this is our work for Christ in the church, but also in the city. As we think of how we work, of our time and the margins that we leave in our life, it is not only our service here within the gathered body of believers, but in the city and our neighborhood in which we live. Every Sunday, Redemption, you are sent out with a you are loved, and you're to take that you are loved to the nations, to proclaim the gospel, to, to let the, the glow of having met with the Lord send you out that others would ask the question that you would be a light in the city, that you would be a light in your neighborhood. 
You come to church for worship and equipping, and then you are sent back out. You come in to refuel, you land on the aircraft carrier, and then you are sent back out. And if that stops, church, if our work for Christ stops, if our mission stops, if our mobilization stops, if our celebrating stops, then we're dead. We're done. Our our, our church is useless. But we must be about these things. And if it continues, then it multiplies. And then just imagine with me for a second, church, what will happen, what God will do for his glory as we celebrate his work, as we mobilize the faithful for his work. Imagine what this fall will hold for us. Imagine uh, the stories that we will share together of the lost being saved, of the saved being matured, and the mature being multiplied. Imagine the salvations we'll see. Imagine the baptisms we'll witness. Imagine the small groups that will multiply, the ministries that'll start, the churches that will plant, the spiritual excitement that will permeate our body of believers. Just imagine redemption. I want a healthy, vibrant, growing church like that, don't you? I want a church where we, with eyes fixed on Christ and feet firmly planted in the scriptures and being thrust forward by the Spirit, that God the Father would get all the glory he deserves. I want a church like that, don't you? Let's pray and ask God that it would be so now. God in heaven, here we are. We're your people wanting you to get the glory that is due to you, wanting these things to be true in our life and in our church's life, God. Even as we uh, sing this morning and worship you, we, we do so celebrating your work. We do so because you deserve it. Because we want you to have the highest praise. That you get all glory and honor that the scriptures talk about and we know you deserve. Lord, we need the, we need the motivation. We need you to mobilize us, God. Would you make us people like that are described there? Would you help us to pour out into others as we seek to live a holy life for your sake and that would then be our witness to a world not for ours not not so people would look at us but so that jesus you would be put on display christ we uh, we worship you this morning we want to be a part of uh, a work like this we're grateful we're thankful this morning that you've brought us into it would you by your grace and mercy according to your promise make that so into the days and months and years ahead so help us now receive our praise we pray in christ's name amen